Many of you have asked, when are we going to get back to Ephesians? Well, we're back today. If you recall, two months ago when we left off here, I was in the middle of a kind of a mini-series in Ephesians. We were looking at Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. And we were considering how each person of the Trinity unites us in the church. And so I just want to read to you 4, 1 through 6 to set the context. And we'll look back at the previous two parts, the person and work of the Spirit and person and work of the Son. And today we'll look at God the Father. Ephesians 4, I'll read 1 through 6. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You'll recall that we've been talking about how Ephesians sets the groundwork in the first three chapters by teaching doctrine, by laying a doctrinal foundation. So that in the last three chapters, Paul can apply that doctrine into the Christian life, into the church. Even though chapter 4 starts the application section, it's not as if we forget doctrine when we began to apply the teaching of Scripture. The teaching of Scripture is the doctrine of Scripture. And so he's tying these two sections of the letter together here. And he's saying, based on what I've already taught you, based on all you know about who God is, you need to live in a way that lines up with your calling. You need to live like the Christian that is spoken of here in the Bible, like Christ. And one of the ways we do that as a church is to be unified. We must be unified. We must be together. We must not be divisive. We must not divide over things unless it's the essentials. That's the only real biblical reason for division is when a church is not teaching the essentials or not practicing the essentials of the faith. Well, Paul lays those out. We don't have to guess what are the essentials. Here's a snapshot of them in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. And he's laid out quite a list here. The essentials of the faith. The theology, the doctrine taught in Scripture. Theology is important. Biblical doctrine is important. You must study it. You must learn it as a Christian. R.C. Sproul once said that theology is the queen of the sciences. Of all the things we can learn in life, theology, he says, is the queen of it. And it's been thought that way throughout history. He goes on to say, all other disciplines are her handmaidens. But the modern day church is increasingly content to have a religion without theology and a theology without God. It's almost illogical because theology is the study of God. Too much of Christianity today is about trying to do Christianity without a theology, without a knowledge of God, without biblical teaching, biblical doctrine. It's doctrine, Paul says, that unites us, that we can be united around. How do you know if someone is with you theologically? Well, he gives a list. What do we go through with our new members when they join? Do they have to know all doctrine extensively? 
or the basics of the faith. We go through the basics of the faith. It's called our statement of faith. Every member has to agree at least to the essentials of doctrine. That's how we have unity here. Not because we agree on the smallest, finest detail, but we agree on the essentials, the important things. So we looked a few months ago now at verse 4. And verse 4 dealt with the Holy Spirit, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And he just summarizes it by saying there's, there's one body and one spirit. There's one Holy Spirit. And he's called all believers into a common destination. Paul says that's the one hope. The one hope of your calling. The hope of salvation. And in the Bible, hope, of course, is not a, I hope I get there. But a sure expectation. A waiting upon something to happen. And the Spirit has called all true believers to look forward to when Christ returns. And we can be with Christ in heaven forever and ever. And he says that Spirit has made us one body. The church is one body. The the true church all over the world is one body. But the local church too is one body here locally. And Paul's saying, look, you ought to unite around this fact that the Spirit is one. He's created the church. And we're all called to look forward to the hope of our calling. In verse 5, we talked about Jesus, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was part two of the foundation of unity. Jesus has given us one faith. He's given us one set of doctrines. Not multiple different contrasting doctrines or contradicting doctrines. One gospel. One gospel of salvation. There's not five gospels. There's not 20 gospels. There's not different ways to get saved and get into heaven. There's just one. Paul says in Galatians that there is only one. And anybody else who teaches something else, even if it's an angel, is to be accursed. There's one gospel. There's one set of core doctrines of salvation. One settled body of truth. That's been passed down from Christ to his apostles. That's been recorded in scripture. And it's been passed down now for 2,000 years to the church. One faith. He's not talking there about your subjective faith. He's talking about an objective faith there in verse 5. One set of Christian doctrines. The faith. And one baptism. Jesus has given us one baptism. One baptism, a a baptism that symbolizes the fact that we've been regenerated, that we've been called, that the Spirit's done its work in us. It's one ordinance called baptism. We also have the Lord's Supper not mentioned here, but baptism is a symbol of new life. It reminds us that Christ has saved us and given us something new, a cleansing, a forgiveness. So that's the Spirit, that's also the Son. Now we look today at the Father. The Father. These are all essentials. There can be no new or or fanciful beliefs here. Paul doesn't leave room. He He doesn't sort of leave a space where we can insert our own doctrines. We've got to dig into these. Paul likes to put a lot of deep doctrine and sort of smash it down into a few verses. Why? Why does God do that? Well, one reason I believe is that we've got to study. We've got to study. The gospel's clear. The smallest child who can understand and, and hear words can hear the gospel and understand it. But to grow, to go further into doctrine, you've got to study. You've got to cross-reference. You've got to look at the Old and the New Testament. And so when Paul says these things, 
they're probably recalling what he taught them the three years he was there. He put them through a, an equipping class. He put them through a seminary almost when he was there, teaching and teaching and teaching. So when he says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, he's saying, recall that, recall that. I taught you about those things. So let's look at the Father. Verse 6 here. The doctrine of God. Theology proper is what it's called. If you're studying systematic theology, this is theology proper. The doctrine of God, His attributes, the Trinity. And today in this text, we're going to look at five facts about God that unite us. What are five facts about God the Father that unite us? First of all, the Trinitarian nature of God. To be united, we all have to agree about the Trinitarian nature of God. The Trinity. One God. That's it. He just says one God. That's his doctrine of the Trinity boiled down. One God. Where's the Trinity in that? Well, the Trinity is the fact that he's already mentioned the Spirit who does amazing work. Work that only the Spirit of God could do. He's mentioned Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son, work that only God could do. And now he's going to talk about the Father, but right here he just says one God and Father. Now often when Paul says God in a list of the Trinity, he just calls the Father God. That's Old Testament language. They didn't have the revelation that we do in the New Testament, and so they just spoke to God in the Old Testament. Or the covenant name of God, Yahweh, or Lord, Adonai. But here, we have more revelation. It's been revealed to us by Christ and His apostles that there is three persons, three personalities, three persons in one God. So Paul says one God. And he's really already taught us about this. It's, It's been all throughout the letter up to this point. Every chapter has been a teaching on the Trinity. If you go back to chapter 1. Remember, we saw that the Father chose. The Father chose and predestined. 1, 4, 1, 5, 1, 6. He predestined those who would be saved. And then, right after that, God the Son redeemed those whom the Father chose. The Son paid the price. He bought us. He redeemed us. And then at the end, in one thirteen, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit seals us. So that we don't fall away. So that we can't lose our salvation. That was just chapter 1. Then we go to chapter 2. And and Paul wrote that all believers have access to the Father. How? Through the Spirit, he said. And because the Son has reconciled us to God. Chapter 2 was all about being born again. Chapter 2 was about because we were dead in our transgressions. God had to come and do something. He had to make us alive again. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in chapter 2. And then chapter 3 was the same. At the very end there, in his prayer, he asked the Father, Paul does, he asked the Father to grant the church blessings through the Spirit. For what purpose? So that Christ, the Son, would dwell in our hearts through faith. Every chapter, Paul is talking about the Trinity. And he's teaching us what Father, Son, and Spirit are doing in our lives, what they've done already to save us, and even who they are. Let's go to Matthew 28 and verse 19. This is a teaching that Jesus brought to us, the teaching of the Trinity. It was there in the Old Testament, but it was more subtle. It was harder to see. Jesus brings it and makes it more clear. And in Matthew 28, 
19, he gives the great commission. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That's step one of the great commission. We often think that is the great commission, but that's step one. Make a disciple. Then he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. But let's look at this, baptizing them in the name. The word name is singular. The name. One. One name. What name? God. But wait. There's three persons mentioned. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three names, but one name. How does that work? Well, that's something we call the Trinity. You won't find the word Trinity in Scripture, but the teaching is there. Trinity is a word that later... Latin-speaking people came up with, and we've carried that over into English to describe what the Bible teaches here. Go forward to 1 Corinthians 12. Again, the Apostle Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, you'll see a list of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We must be united around the Trinity. There's a lot of heresies that deny the Trinity. False teachings. 1 Corinthians 12, 4. Now there are varieties of gifts. So Paul's talking about the spiritual gifts. And really there's a problem in the Corinthian church because they're fighting over who's better and who's got the better gift. They're boasting. And he says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Talking about the Holy Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. Talking about Jesus, the Son. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God. That's the Father who works all things in all persons. One more, 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 14. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Just a few verses that speak of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Paul writes, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, that's the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. There it is. The, the list of the Trinity. Over and over in Scripture. The teaching is throughout. It's a wonderful doctrine. It's not a doctrine that we can really fully comprehend. Because how do you have three in one? How do you have a God that is one with three persons? Here's the theological definition of the Trinity. Within the one being that is God, there eternally exists three co-equal and co-eternal persons, each of whom is fully God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father's not the Son. The Son's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not the Father. They're co-equal, and they're co-eternal, always existing. The great preacher Jonathan Edwards said, I think the doctrine of the Trinity to be the highest and deepest of all divine mysteries. It is. It's a mystery in the sense that we cannot fully understand it. But we must believe it because it's taught in Scripture. If we're Christians, we must believe what's taught in Scripture. And of course, it shouldn't be hard because we know that the Father planned our salvation, the Son bought us, paid for us, died for us, and the Spirit regenerated us. And they're all described as being God in Scripture. James White in his book, The Forgotten Trinity, said that the Trinity is the highest revelation God has made of himself to his people. It is the capstone, the summit, the brightest star in the firmament 
of divine truths. We've got to be unified around that teaching. Which means we can't be unified with people that deny the Trinity. If someone denies the Trinity and they've been explained and taught from Scripture on what it is, they're not a Christian. That's what Scripture is saying. Paul says we're united around one God who denies the Trinity. Muslims deny the Trinity. Jehovah's Witnesses deny the Trinity. Mormons deny the Trinity. Oneness Pentecostals deny the Trinity. We're not united with them. We're united with Christians who agree on these things. Who agree that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are God. Three persons, one God. Well, Paul moves on, doesn't he? He says, one God and Father of all. We're back to Ephesians now. One God and Father of all. That's the fatherhood of God, number two. So he's taught us about the Trinity. Not really explained there in in that little phrase, one God, but I'm showing you where he's taught it elsewhere and implying it with that phrase. One God and Father. So he often calls God the Father, but when he says one God and Father, and he's already spoken of the Spirit and the Son, he's speaking of the Trinity. What is this fatherhood of God, though? Well, he's saying that God is our Father. Not just that he's the Father of all mankind. He is the creator of all mankind. You can go to Acts 17 where Paul is speaking to the pagans and he reminds them that there's one God, they don't know him, but he's created all people. From one man, all nations, he said, have been created. God knows their name and God calls them to repent. But in the context of Ephesians 4, he's not talking about God creating all things and all people. What's Ephesians 4 about? It's about the church. It's about believers. God... Our Father is the Father of all believers. He is our Father. He has brought us into being as a church. And so we ought to be united around the Father. Around the teaching of God the Father in Scripture. He's our Father because He's adopted us. That's one reason He is called our Father. Ephesians 1.5, Paul spoke about this. Let me get back to Ephesians here. Go back to chapter 1, verse 5. Very clear teaching on adoption. He, this is God the Father, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. So God predestined. He marked out ahead of time. For what? To have us adopted as sons. We're part of His family if you're saved. You're a son or daughter of God. Not just because He created you, but because He saved you. He, he predestined that you would be saved through the work of Christ to Himself. To God. You get to be part of God's family. He's your Father because you've been adopted. An unbeliever cannot call God Father. That's why Jesus says over and over, if you want to know the Father, you've got to know Me. There's only one way to the Father, that's through Christ. Adoption means that we're brought into God's family, that He's given us all the rights, all the rights of a son. Jesus has purchased those rights. What are they? The gift of the Holy Spirit. All the good gifts that our Father has promised to give us in Scripture. Fatherly discipline. A father disciplines. He doesn't discipline children that aren't His. Hopefully you don't go around disciplining everybody else's children in the grocery store. 
Sometimes you might want to, but God, it says in Scripture, disciplines the son that he loves. Others, he lets them go into their sin and they'll be judged for it. His children, he disciplines them. We're adopted into his family. He's our father. And we also can be unified because we're all part of one family. He's our father. We're part of one family. A family should be united. It's not always that way in man's world, but it is that way when it comes to sons and daughters of God. He's also called over and over the one who made us to be his children. John chapter 1 verse 11. Let's look at John 1 11. He came to his own, speaking of Christ, speaking of Messiah here, son of God. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, believed in him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. How do we become children of God? Through Christ. Believing in Christ, trusting in Christ. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. That means you can't be born naturally into this. Your family can't give it to you. And you can't desire it. The will of the flesh means you can't make yourself a children, a child of God. Nor of the will of man. Somebody else can't wish you into the kingdom. But what? How do you become a child of God? Through Christ. But what's the ultimate reason? It's of God. That's how the verse ends in verse 13. But of God. You have the right to become children of God. It's not according to all these other things that we think it is, but it's of God. We're part of God's family because he made us part of his family. We can't force our way into God's family. We can't will and wish our way into God's family. Now we can come to him in faith and he will save us. But Paul's telling us that's already even been planned. Galatians 4. Let's look at Galatians 4.4. 4. If you're in our Bible studies, you might remember a few weeks ago we looked at this passage, or I guess months ago now. Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time came, according to God's timeline, according to God's plan, plan for the whole world, God sent forth His Son just at the exact time He wanted to. His son, now his son is God the son, but he's born of a woman. He's also fully man, born under the law. What's the purpose of God sending his son? So that he might redeem those who were under the law. We're all all under some kind of law, either the Mosaic law if you're Jewish, or natural law, the law of the heart, if you're Gentile. But the ultimate reason, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Why did Christ come? Well, there are many reasons. One of those that Paul is teaching on in Galatians 4 is that we might be adopted into his family. God's our father because he's adopted us. He's come and he's rescued us. He's paid the price for us and adopted us. Also, he's our father because he's made us a new creation. He didn't just adopt us, but he created us into something new. Paul's spoken of that in uh, Ephesians 2 already. He's just reminding them of what he taught there about the new birth. Ephesians 2, 4. He's going to make us alive. That's what Ephesians 2, 4 is about. If you're dead in your sins and now you're saved, what, what's the difference? Here's it, here it is. But God. Not you. He doesn't say you. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love 
with which he loved us. Why did he love us? Chapter 1. He's predestined us. Chosen us. Not because of anything we've done or will do. Or because of how great we are. Because of the kind intention of his will. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. That means dead. What is dead? Can't get up. You're dead. You have no life. See, when a dead person is dead, they can't get up and give themselves new life. But God did it. What? When we were dead in our sins, He made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Paul's whole point is, it's God's grace that saved you. It's God's grace that gave you new life. You can't boast. He goes on to talk about that. If you could boast, then you've done something special. You could pat yourself on the back if it's by your works. It's not. It's by God's grace. And He is our Father because He's given us a new life. He's made us alive. He's made us born again. He's taken out the heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. You can't do that to yourself. God did it. And at the same time, He adopted you. James 1.18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He brought us forth. How? By the word of truth, the, the scriptures, the gospel, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. God's our father. If you're in Christ, God is your father. You can come to him. You can pray to him. You can ask things of him. You can call out to him in times of trouble. He's your father. And as a church, we're unified around that. God is our Father. We pray every service to the Father. Sometimes we pray directly to Christ. But most of the time we pray to the Father. As Jesus taught us. And, and we ask things of Him. And we ask Him to help us, to bless us, to grow us, to save people, to save our family members, our friends. Paul says we've got to be united around the fatherhood of God. And number three, he also says, We've got to be united around the sovereignty of God. An often forgotten teaching, a forgotten doctrine, the sovereignty of God. And it's in this little phrase, who is over all. One God and one Father of all, who is over all. Now we're still talking about all believers here. This whole paragraph is directed at believers and he's teaching about the church. He's the father of all believers. If we're all in one family. We should get along and not be divisive. And Paul says he's also over all. Whenever I teach a Greek class, I tell the guys to learn prepositions in Greek. Because they're very important when it comes to theology. You change a preposition and it changes the theology of the passage. And here the preposition is over. Where is God? He's over all. Later we're going to see through all. That's a different preposition, through. And then in all. Same in English. These prepositions teach us the theology here. You change the preposition, it becomes a different theology. So what does it mean that God is over all? It means that He's sovereign. He's above all believers. He's not equal to us. God's not our little buddy right here beside us. He's not underneath us where we can tell him what to do and tell him he better do this 
and tell him he better bless us. You better bless us, God. You better bless us because this guy down the street told me you better bless us. God's above all believers. He's sovereign over us. Not as a cruel God, but as a loving God, a good God. He's above all, Paul says. We could just translate it literally above instead of over. Above all. Specifically speaking here about how God is sovereign over all things in the believer's life. Of course he's sovereign over the universe. He created it. Of course God upholds all things. Of course he sustains all things. But here Paul's saying he's sovereign in our lives. Sometimes it's easy for us to say, oh yeah, God created all things and he, he makes things happen in the government and in the world and things grow and die upon the earth. But he's not, he's not in our lives specifically. He would never do that. He would never infringe upon our desires and our will. Paul says God's overall. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I go back to chapter 1 of Ephesians. What was the whole chapter about? God is sovereign over your salvation. This is a good thing. This is not something we want to push back at. Not something we want to reject. First of all, because it's in Scripture. Secondly, because if God's the one who did it, then God will keep you. That's the point Paul drives at by the end of this chapter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That we would be holy and blameless before Him. And he did this when? Before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. Before he created anything. And if you put this together with other passages like Romans 8 and 9, he didn't look into the future to see what we would do. He, he did it of his own free will. God's free will. There's a lot of talk about man's free will, but the Bible focuses on God's free will. Do we have responsibility? We do. We do, but what's the emphasis of Scripture? God's desires, God's good and holy will. God's will. What's the will of God for your life? To be holy. What's God's will being displayed right here? Well, we can just see. Let's keep reading. Verse 5, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. Here it is. According to the kind intention of His will. What was God's will? He's sovereign. And we better be thankful that He is. I'll get to that in a moment, but we, we need to be happy about this. He goes on to talk about how Christ redeemed us. We didn't decide to get on the cross and die for ourselves. Christ followed the Father's will. He got on the cross. The Spirit seals us so we don't lose our salvation. God didn't ask you, do, do you want the Holy Spirit to seal you? Do you want the Holy Spirit to preserve you? No, that's his promise. He does that out of his own sovereignty, and that's good for us. It's especially good for us to remember that God's sovereign, even after we're saved, after we're justified, over our everyday life. Everything that happens today, everything you're going through as a believer in Christ, God is sovereign. What's the key passage for this? Romans 8. Go, to, go back to Romans 8.28. One of the most popular verses for Christians. And it should be. It's a good verse. 
Romans 8, 28. When things are tough, whenever you think that God is testing you or you're going through tribulations, Romans 8, 28 is what you need to recall. We know that God causes all things, all things, not just some things, all things in His universe, good things, what we consider bad things, righteous things, evil things, all things to work together for good. For who? To those who love God. To those who are called according to His purpose. Everything going on in your life. Now you can't excuse your sin and say, well, God's going to use it for good. He'll discipline you too. You don't want that. This is for the person who's weary, the person who's weak, the person who's suffering. The one who needs to be reminded that all of these things are happening for a plan. A plan that God has put in place. You've heard that God loves you and has a plan for your life. And many people go around saying, here's the gospel. God loves you and has a plan for your life. Yeah, he does have a plan for your life. As a believer, he does love you and he does have a plan for your life. And it might be to suffer and die like the apostle Paul did or Peter. It's not Joel Osteen, God loves you and has a plan for your life to be rich and wealthy and have blessings. It might be that God has a plan for your life to suffer. You'll have times of joy, but you'll have times of suffering. And he's putting it right here. God is putting it in his word. That remember, all these things are for your good. How can it be for my good? Well, it's sanctifying me. Whatever is the outcome, it is sanctifying me. Everything in your life. Your kids are sanctification in your life. Your parents are sanctification in your life. Your work, whatever God's given you to do, is sanctification in your life. Your church is sanctification. Whatever happens in the world, is being used to sanctify God's people. So he's sovereign. He's sovereign over our everyday life. 1 Peter 5, 6. Let's go there. 1 Peter 5, 6. Peter's going to take this sovereignty in our lives and apply it in a way that comforts us. God's sovereignty is a comforting doctrine. Charles Spurgeon said it's the pillow he lays his head on every night. God's sovereignty is like a pillow. He can sleep sound knowing that God's in control. And that's what, he gets this right here from 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves. Lower yourself. Get low before God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. God is mighty. He's sovereign. He's powerful. Lower yourself. Compared to God, you ought to lower yourself because he's above us need to recognize that. He's above all believers, Paul says. And so Peter is applying that. You must humble yourselves that he may exalt you at the proper time. When you're going through trials, when you're going through tribulations, you need to humble yourself. God is mighty. He will then raise you back up at the right time. And while you're doing this, while you're humbling yourselves, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. God loves his people. He's not a father that is just always stern and always wanting to punish. There is times of discipline, but there's times of great joy and blessing. He, He cares for his people. And we're to cast our anxieties on him. That's why Jesus said, don't worry. You can't do anything about it by worrying anyway. Whatever's going on in your life, don't worry. You can't change the next day. You can't even change one hair on your head. You can't change one small thing 
in your life. You can't grow taller just by thinking about it and worrying about it. And so Peter says, God's sovereign. God's in control. Cast your cares on him. Apostle James, something similar. He says, consider it all joy. My brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why would we consider trials and tribulation and temptation a joy? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. When you've been tested and you pass the test. Because you are a true believer. You pass the test. And you are joyful because of that. And you're joyful through the process as you look forward. Knowing that God is using this for good. And that if I am truly saved, God will persevere me. And faith produces endurance. The more trials I go through, the more I learn to trust in God, the more I can endure the next trial and the next trial and the next trial. So while you're in the middle of it, consider it joy. Because you know something good is going to happen. Maybe not in this life, but certainly in the next. God's sovereign. We've got we to remember that. We've got to go to Him and pray to him because of that. And we as a church have to remember that God is sovereign. And, and be together on that. We can't have this half of the church believing God can do anything. And in this half saying, no, 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 I get to decide everything. And God does only when I say he can. A church would be split on that. One side is praying for God to sovereignly do something. And the other side says, no, God's waiting on me. Now all true believers realize God is sovereign. We don't always want to talk about it or maybe look at these passages. If we haven't seen them before, we might be a little resistant. But when we pray, we are recognizing God as sovereign. We are expecting that He can do what we ask for. When we pray for someone's salvation, we are expecting that God can save them. We don't say, God, you know, my friend, if you'll just maybe help him to decide of his own free will. No, we say, God, will you save this person? Whatever that means in their life, just just save them. Because we know God can do it. We also got to remember God's sovereign over the church and the churches meeting together. How we worship. He's given us the scriptures. Why? So that we might grow as individuals, but also as a church. We might be sanctified. We might be holy. We might follow what he commands us to do. Whatever he tells us to do, that's what we do. Whatever he tells us to do in church, that's what we do. If he says preach the word, we have to preach the word. If he says sing praises to him, we have to sing praises to him. And if he doesn't tell us to do it, we better be very careful, especially in the worship setting, to not do those things. We need to do what he's called us to do. Preach, pray, sing, and read scripture. We obey him. He's sovereign. We've got to be united around that. Number four, another small phrase, and through all. And through all. What does, he, what does he mean by this? He's talking about the work of God. God is working through us. Through believers. Now God's working everywhere. He's working in the world of unbelief. He's working in the created, wor- the created universe. The world. Nature. But Paul's saying that not only is God sovereign. He's above us. But at the same time he's working through us. The prepositional phrase in Greek dia here is indicating a type of agency. We are God's agents. We are God's instruments. Think of instrumentality. We are, we are His instruments that He uses to accomplish His will within the church, of course. He uses believers in the church to accomplish His will in the church. 
but also in the world. How do other people hear the gospel? Through those who are already saved. How does the gospel go out? Through Christians proclaiming it to others. How do people even know about a church, know about the Christian life? Because they, they come into contact with believers. God is working through us. Go back to Ephesians 2, verse 10. Paul's already expounded this. Ephesians 2.10 is a great verse. Speaks of God's sovereignty once again as well. And he says, For we are his workmanship, his craftsmanship. Believers, this is after that passage we read about how God makes us alive. We're dead in our sin. He makes us alive. For we are his workmanship. He created us in Christ Jesus for good works. What's one of the reasons God saved you? For good works. In this life. And he goes on to say, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Every good work that you are supposed to do, God has prepared beforehand. Every one you will do, God's already prepared beforehand. He's predestined your sanctification. And thank the Lord that he did. How many of us would just wander off? How many of us would stray off like sheep and never come back? But God's already set the course. We shouldn't, we shouldn't fight at that. We should be happy. God, you're in control. You're in control of my salvation, my justification, my sanctification. I'm going to work. I'm going to strive for holiness. But I know that's through God working in me, through me. We're instruments. He, he picks up his instruments and he does his work. That's what Paul's getting at. God has made us. He's made the church. He, he's made a new creation. He, he's caused us to be born again. We've looked at those passages. Why? To be his instruments. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So he's created us to be a new person so that we can do good works for him. What are good works? We're being sanctified. We're growing. Good work might be helping your neighbor. A good work might be helping someone in the church. A good work might be praying with someone in your church. A good work might be teaching your children the scripture. A good work might be volunteering to serve. A good work might be learning more of the scriptures so you can do more good works. Good work's not just physically what you do with your body. It is that, if it's for God. But it's also growing and learning and praying. Titus 2.14 Christ gave himself... For us to redeem us from every lawless deed. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Zealous for good deeds. He saved us. He purified us. Why? So that we might be zealous for good deeds. Zealous is no light word in scripture. You got to have a zeal for good works. You got to have a zeal for growing in your sanctification. A real passionate desire. Because God's working through us. I think the most common reference verse on this is Philippians 2. Sometimes it's misunderstood. So let's go to Philippians 2.12. God is working through us. Paul fleshes this out very well here in Philippians 2.12. Now remember salvation is everything. Sometimes Paul says salvation is everything from the time you're saved. Until you're in heaven. Sometimes he's talking about justification. The moment God justifies you. That's your salvation. 
But sometimes he's including other things like sanctification in there. And so that's what's happening here. Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if we just throw in justification there, we're going to be in trouble because he's already said many places we can't work for our justification. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does he mean? For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's talking about good works, sanctification, growing in the faith, doing what he wants us to do. You've got to work it out. You've got to work out what God's put in. You've got to take it and do something with it. Now, it's not all you, even in your sanctification and your growth and your good deeds. He's still there working through us. It's still all him, Paul says. Well, who is it? Is it God or is it us? Well, it's God working through us. So we can't take the credit because it's God. But we are expected to do something. You can't earn your justification. You certainly better be working in your sanctification, though. God is both willing and doing the work that we need Him to do in us. We are instruments in His hands. And we can't have unity with some sort of cold, dead religion where we believe the Bible, we believe the doctrines, but we don't do anything with it. James said you got to be doers of the Word. He calls people in his church that he's writing to hypocrites because they think they know the Bible, but they don't do anything with it. You haven't read James in a while, you should read it. I know that the teens are about to pick up on their class in a couple of weeks on James and finish that book out. Hypocrite. You've got to be doers of the word because God is, is working through us. We don't want to be a church that can check all the boxes on our doctrinal statement. But when people show up here, we're, we're, not, we're, we're lifeless. We're dead. We don't have any life. We've got to be working for God's glory. That's what he means in verse 6. And it's it's all of God's glory. It's for Him. It's for His glory. We can't pat ourselves on the back for whatever we do. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? Receive from God, in other words. Don't brag about what you have in, in Christ. You received it. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Why do you think You've done something so good, he tells the Corinthians. Why do you want to pat yourself on the back for what God's actually giving you? We have to be united around God working through us, the work of God in our lives. And then lastly, number five, the indwelling of God. That's this last little phrase, and in all. I just love how Paul packs so much theology into this little prepositional phrase. In all. And through all. And over all. We've got to dig around. We've got to figure out what he means by this. So God's above. He's sovereign. He's working through. And now he's in all believers. This is amazing. How can God be in all believers? The Father in each believer? Yes, but through the Holy Spirit's indwelling. It's Paul's way of sort of summarizing the Holy Spirit's indwelling, that God the Father has sent the Spirit to dwell in us, but the Holy Spirit is God. So really, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are indwelling us. What is indwelling? It's an intimate and special union 
and in habitation. Go back to Ephesians 2. He's already taught us on this. Ephesians 2.20. And what does he say there? Speaking of the church, all of us, all of us in this local church and all true churches around the world, that we're part of God's household. That's how he finishes 19. And then verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Christ came. He laid the cornerstone. He taught his apostles. Their teaching laid the rest of the foundation. And now, verse 21, in whom the whole building. So there's a foundation laid. Now there's a building coming up. And it's being fitted together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. God is indwelling the church. And and all of us, as a person gets saved and comes into the church, it's like a building, a temple is going up that God lives inside of. God indwells us. Remember in the Old Testament, God said, I will dwell in them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Well, this is that promise coming to fruition. How does God indwell us? Through His Spirit. 1 John 3, 24. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, John says, and He in Him. So if you keep God's commandments, thereby showing that you're truly His, that means God lives in you. He abides in you. He's already there. That's, that's why you can actually do good works like keep His commandments. And He in Him, we know this, that He abides, He lives in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. 1 John 4, 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. God lives in us. Every time you sin, you need to remember, God is dwelling in you. That should be a stark reminder of our sin and our corruption. And we should quickly repent. John says, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide abide in him. We live in him and he in us. How? Because he's given us of his spirit. John 14, 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him. And he will come to him. We will come to him, Jesus says. We, the son and the father. And make our abode with him. How do you have the father... God live in you because you trusted in Christ as your Savior. And Christ comes and lives in us and the Spirit is dwelling in us and through the Spirit dwelling in us, the Father is also in us. I'll give you one last verse on that. Galatians 4, 6. Because you are sons. Again, connecting with that adoption idea. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Father sends the Spirit The Son sends the Holy Spirit. The Spirit dwells in us. Christ dwells in us. And God is in us. We have to be united around that. Do you know how hard it is if you're teaching that God does not indwell believers? Do you know how hard it is to counsel somebody? To do church discipline? To correct them? If you believe that, that God doesn't indwell, that the Spirit's not in a person that's a believer then there's no way to know that they're actually going to change for good. There's nothing to motivate them other than their own human will. A church has to be united around that. Because if your brother's truly in Christ and you correct him, then you 
know that he's going to respond to scripture. You hope that he's going to respond and do what the spirit moves him to do. If the spirit's in us when we sing, when we worship, we can expect that God is with us, that we are worshiping corporately and praising God because he's with us in spirit. We should be united around all these doctrines. There shouldn't be division. In a true church, Paul says, there's not division. We are together. Around the Trinitarian nature of God, the fatherhood of God, the sovereignty of God, the work of God, and the indwelling of God. We have to be. We have to be together. I just want to read to you what an early church father, this was right after the apostles said, about this teaching. And I'll close with that. First Clement is the letter. He was one of the earlier pastors in Rome. Not, not a pope. Just a pastor. And he wrote a letter. And he had some things to say. So he was talking about division. And he says. Do we not have one God and one Christ? One gracious spirit. That has been poured out upon us. One calling in Christ. Why do we mangle and mutilate the members of Christ and create factions in our own body? Why do we come to such a pitch of madness as to forget that we are members of one another? Well, let's be united here. Let's not have division. Let us not fight. Let us not mangle one another. The teaching is in Scripture. We have one God. We have one God and Father one Lord Jesus Christ, and one Holy Spirit. So let's pray now to our Father to keep us unified. Father, we do pray that you would unify us around the truth, the holy truth of your word. We know in times past there has been division. There's always division at some point in a church. We know that you persevered us through that and you you healed us of that and you grew us You have trained us. You have taught us in your word over these years. We pray that we're a mature church that would not be divided. That would not separate over truth. Unless, of course, Lord, a group moves out because they're not of us. They never were. But we pray that even that would not happen. That all who come and join this body would be true believers in Christ. Wanting to be unified. Believing the gospel. I pray Lord that if there's anybody here this morning that's not in Christ. They would would hear this message and understand they they don't have these blessings. They don't have God the Father. They don't have adoption. They don't have a body to belong to. So I pray that you would convict their hearts and bring them to Christ. Let the Spirit regenerate them, bring them to salvation. We hope that this has honored you today, Lord. We pray that we might take these truths and meditate on them throughout the week and consider how great and wonderful you are. We ask this in the name of our Lord. Amen.